The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Then there's going to be a battle over whether or not Trump's defense lawyers can do the Biden did it too defense. The judge will rule against that, but that will play out in a way that will ultimately impact the trial of the case, possibly uh, circle back to the jurors. It's impossible to keep information like that from them. It is a horrible false equivalency. It should not be admitted because as we've said already, Trump's willful obstruction is nothing like what seems to have happened, at least so far as we know, with Biden. But the reality is, you know, when he sits there at the end of the day and says, can we get 12 Florida jurors on the east coast of Florida in the southern district to vote guilty on this unanimously, the odds just went substantially down. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. January 13th, 2023. Yesterday afternoon, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he has appointed a special counsel to investigate the revelations that documents bearing classification markings had been found in President Biden's private office and residence. The appointment comes after a preliminary investigation that began on November 14th, just days before a different special counsel was appointed to investigate documents found at former President Trump's residence. I sat down with Lawfare contributor Paul Rosenzweig, as well as my Lawfare colleagues Scott R. Anderson and Benjamin Wittes, to go through it all. We talked about why these circumstances triggered the special counsel regulations, what we know about potential criminal exposure, and how this may impact the ongoing special counsel investigation of Donald Trump. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 13th, 2023. Another special counsel and more classified documents. Okay, so the breaking news of this afternoon is that Attorney General Garland has appointed another special counsel, this time to investigate the matter of some classified documents that were found by Biden's personal attorneys starting back in November of 2022. So to get us started, um, Scott, can you just run us through what we've learned about the facts that led to the appointment of this new special counsel? Absolutely. Let's let's run through a bit of a TikTok of what we know happened and when we learned of it. Um, what we know is that earlier in the fall, shortly before the midterm elections, 
there was a discovery that there were certain classified documents in an office that was used by President Biden when he was former Vice President Biden at the Penn Biden Center, a think tank that he sponsored and was named after him at the University of Pennsylvania that had classified markings on them. This was brought to the attention of the White House, who brought it to the attention of the National Archives, who brought it to the attention of the Justice Department. There was an FBI investigation as kind of started as standard protocol, because of course, these are classified documents that were in an unsecured environment. Um, We then learned that a few weeks later, an additional tranche of documents was discovered at President Biden's private residence in his garage, supposedly in a locked area of his garage. And then earlier today, or uh, at least in the last 24, 48 hours, we discovered that there was, in fact, at least one other document with classified markings discovered and brought forward by President Biden's counsel uh, or through his staff located at in his Wilmington residence himself. So presumably separate from that tranche that was in the locked bundle in the garage. During this time, we know Attorney General Garland, after the initial revelation, requested that a U.S. attorney who had been appointed by former President Trump and held over take the lead at looking into this incident, deciding whether a criminal investigation might be warranted and or whether the appointment of a special counsel might be warranted. Um, That investigation wrapped up initially a few days ago, and that individual made the recommendation that, yes, in fact, a special counsel appointment was appropriate. That appears to have led Attorney General Garland to make the announcement today that, in fact, he is appointing Robert Herr, a former U.S. attorney during the Trump administration and former Justice Department official in other capacities, to be be that special counsel and look into this potential possession of classified information by President Biden, former Vice President Biden. Okay, thanks. That's really helpful. So we have these three tranches of documents. The appointment that Scott just mentioned of John Lausch took place on November 14th, which was after the first tranche of documents was was, um, identified on the 4th. Of course, this was done, as um, Attorney General Garland described in his remarks today, in connection with the special counsel regulation. He named in particular 600.2b. So Paul, talk to us about what that regulation is and what it is about the fact that these this initial tranche of documents was identified that led immediately to the notion that the special counsel regulation is triggered here and we need to start a process that is spelled out under this regulation. Well, as listeners, I'm sure remember, the special counsel regulation was the replacement for the independent counsel law that lapsed many, many years ago. It is, broadly speaking, an effort to create a process that provides a form of independence to the nominated special counsel that allows him or her to conduct an investigation without being bound by the day-to-day reporting chain processes and and control processes that attend any other investigation in the Department of Justice. Unlike the independent counsel, who was de jure completely independent from the Department of Justice, this special counsel, however, ultimately is and remains a part of the Department of Justice and thus subject both to its regulatory strictures broadly writ and 
uh, ultimately to the control of Attorney General Garland. Uh, as we saw, for example, with Attorney General Barr's treatment of the special counsel report from Robert Mueller, that oversight by the department can be either strong or weak, depending upon the nature of the attorney general and his desire or to be engaged or his desire to avoid being engaged. As for the triggering of this in this case, the special counsel regulation is classically intended to avoid situations in which the independence of the department's own investigative functions might reasonably be called into question by virtue of circumstances outside of the context of the investigation itself. I, for one, think that it could have been argued that there was no ground, for example, to necessitate the appointment of a special counsel to investigate President Trump, uh, but uh, I could understand and accept the argument that having the Department of Justice of one pol political uh, actor investigate his likely future opponent uh, was something to call into question that probity and, and the justice of doing so and require an independent counsel. The classic case for which an, a special counsel or, or before them independent counsels were required was an investigation of criminal conduct by a president of the United States. This is Nixon. This is Clinton. Uh, this is or was Trump. Uh, and now it is possibly Biden. I remain uncertain as to the quantum of evidence that makes this worthy of criminal investigation at this point. But again, out of an abundance of caution, I, I think that Attorney General Garland really had no choice once it became clear that, certainly once it became clear that more than one instance of mishandling had occurred, that an independent investigation was required, even if only uh, to validate in the end the decision not to indict if it is in fact that sort of a decision that is made not to investigate or indict anybody. Okay, so to drill down on that a little bit more, I think the the provision that you are pointing to is in 600.1, um, where it talks about how the the reason for appointing a special counsel may be if the potential investigation or prosecution would present a conflict of interest for the department or other extraordinary circumstances. So Ben, I wanted to ask you about that provision because I noted that in Garland's remarks this afternoon, he didn't mention a conflict of interest. He instead invoked the other language in that provision, namely extraordinary circumstances. But do you think that this is, as Paul suggests, a sort of classic example of what would be called a conflict of interest such that the appointment of a special counsel was effectively obvious and, and de facto required under the regulations? So you're correct that the attorney general did not invoke the conflict of interest language. He also, by the way, did not invoke the conflict of interest language in the last round when he appointed Jack Smith to investigate the Mar-a-Lago matter. In both cases, he invoked the other extraordinary circumstances language. And I think the reason for that is just that the Justice Department interprets the conflict of interest language very narrowly. That is to refer to 
you know, Merrick Garland not supervising an investigation of himself or his immediate family, right? And I think they do that for other reasons related to the meaning of, you know, they don't acknowledge a political conflict of interest as a actual conflict of interest for purposes of these regs. As a functional matter, I completely agree with Paul. He had no choice because it is a political conflict of interest to investigate the guy who can fire you at any time. And that's why we have these regulations. And, you know, the, the, the reg basically gives him one out, which is to say you're allowed under the regs to have an initial investigation, a sort of preliminary inquiry is the way the old statute used to look at it. And just kind of feel your way around and figure out if they're if the if the matter is in fact worth investigating, and if it is, you then have to kind of kick it to the special counsel. So here he had uh, Mr. Lausch, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, do the initial investigation. Lausch comes back to him and says, "Yes, there's something worth investigate, worth further investigation here." Once that happens, I really don't understand how he could avoid triggering the statute, whether under the conflict of interest language or under the extraordinary circumstances language. There are two different uh, vehicles that lead very much to the same place. Now, I assume we will talk about this later, but I just want to flag that the fact that this is a clear matter under the regs about what kind of person investigates it and who investigates it in no way implies that it is a likely candidate for criminal prosecution. And so I think it's really, really important for listeners to hold in their minds two separate questions. One is the strength of the case, and one is the question under the reg of who and what sort of prosecutor investigates the case. So I do think it's worth flagging one nuance in how Attorney General Garland used the regs here. He noted that he appointed John Lausch under 600.2 subsection B. It's a section that basically allows the Attorney General to conduct an initial investigation or appoint someone to do conduct an initial investigation, pursuing factual inquiry or legal research as he deems appropriate to better inform the decision as to whether to appoint a special counsel or not. Notably, though, the regs actually don't require that that person be assigned to make a recommendation. But very clearly, Attorney General Garland indicated that that's what he asked U.S. Attorney Lausch to do. So it, it does, in my mind, think that that is a decision that Garland appears to have made for reasons that are somewhat independent of the regulation, certainly it seems to make that option available. But he decided to set himself up in a position essentially where that decision was made by an independent actor that then leads to the appointment of the special counsel. Um, so I don't know if that is act structure is required by the regs, but certainly I think it's, I would agree with Paul and Ben at the point where Garland got the recommendation he asked for, then it's hard to go in a different direction. Although it's not legally prohibited, it's just politically uh, very difficult. I I would add to that that, you know, the only thing that would have let Garland off of the hook and the reason why he asked for this is because I I suppose there were a set of facts that were conceivable under which Lausch could have come back and said, "Uh, sir, I've looked at this thoroughly and there's no conceivable set of circumstances 
under which this would be a prosecutable case, you should close it under 600.2C. And then, then he would have managed to successfully sort of offload that decision as well, which would have been the far more fraught decision. So I, I think it was a good play on his part politically and in terms of uh, seeking an independent outside view to the subject. I think that's a great point. And I also did remark when uh, the attorney general was speaking this afternoon, he was sure to mention that he had spoken with Lausch about the possibility of his continuing as the special counsel, but Lausch had informed him that he was going to be unavailable because he was going into private practice. So I, I think it is an interesting question. And I think, Paul, you've answered it, but I'm wondering, Scott and Ben, if you have any additional thoughts on it. What would be the reason for us to understand that Lausch has made this recommendation? We know that his investigation took place between November 4th and January 5th. And during that time is when the second and third tranche of documents were identified. In addition to the the point, uh, the sort of political point and strategic point that Paul just mentioned, do you have any thoughts Ben, why don't we start with you on on why that may have been? So, first of all, it is a completely routine matter when you see a spillage of classified information that may be criminal. The National Archives or some other agency will almost always refer it. So let's take the events in sequence. The referral to the Justice Department that Garland refers to from I believe the National Archive Inspector General, is a completely routine matter. Uh, The Justice Department assigning it to the FBI for an assessment is also just a completely routine matter. These are almost automatic events that happen when there's this kind of a spillage. Now, I think here's where it gets... So the Lausch then gets appointed and asked to conduct this initial investigation. Garland doesn't say this, but there has been some media reporting that uh, he conducted a number of interviews. And of course, we know that during the pendency of his investigation, the president's attorneys contact him twice to inform him that they've found additional information. So my assumption is that there are Uh, one of two factors, either uh, somebody told him something that was disturbing, you know, that reflected badly and possibly criminally on the conduct of Joe Biden, or more likely, in my view, one of his staff. Or, and this is, I think, the more likely possibility, the explanation is simply that there's uh, repeat cases of this happening more than once, So you're not confident that you know the full parameters of it. You don't want to close a matter involving the president of the United States precipitously because you got to be thorough in cases like that. And so all that Lausch has concluded is that a reasonable prosecutor wouldn't close it at this point, that there's still outstanding questions to be asked. There's still things you would want to do. And so on that basis, further investigation is warranted. And the question then becomes not how strong is the case, but who's the prosecutor who should do that? And he recommends that 
this decision should be made by a special counsel. That's how I would interpret it. But, you know, it, it obviously we don't know what came up in the interviews that he conducted. I would also add to that one other consideration, which is the fact that that these documents have moved, right? We know they were removed from the White House in you know early 2017, late 2016, when Vice President left the office, assuming these were, or if not earlier. But the Biden Center, where the initial tranche of documents that led John Lodge's investigation wasn't established until 2018, um, meaning it's not like the White House could have just moved documents from the White House to this office and Biden's just left them there. Instead, we've seen these documents migrate and in different conditions where they might not be secure. The Penn Biden Center is obviously in an office. There's lots of people with access there, many of whom may not have clearances. It's not clear how secure these were in a way that's different from Joe Biden's garage, also not a secure environment, but less people have ready access, perhaps to be more, less concerning. And then now we have this revelation that an additional document migrated from the garage into the Biden residence. Now, none of this necessarily means anything nefarious. It's possible these were just in big boxes of documents that maybe were being used for a book project or the sorts of things former vice presidents do. They were moved just in big boxes and people didn't realize, oh, there's classified stuff mixed into all these other unclassified records inadvertently, and then never had a reason to go through the book project or begin looking through the files to identify them. But the fact that these documents have moved around and have been exposed for multiple years in a way that other people and potentially malevolent actors could have access to them, I think it makes it really hard to say a bigger investigation isn't warranted here. And the fact the few weeks with John Lausch has looked at this, I suspect might not be, not have been enough time to do the full scope investigation you would need to do for what is honestly like a a multiple years long security breach. Just as we, I think, very understandably expected the Justice Department to really do a lot of forensic evidence to figure try and figure out who had access to the documents at Mar-a-Lago and who had to inappropriately and what the consequences of that might be legally and otherwise. The same sort of analysis is going to have to take place here that's going to have a strong criminal element and you know that in my mind warrants additional time and resources and raises a lot of the bigger questions to say, well, if we're going to do an investigation like this, a special counsel will make sense for the reasons we've already noted. So before we keep going down the the road of talking about the special counsel and the criminal investigation and, and what may come of that, uh, I want to take a brief moment here to pause and actually suggest that the commonality between Trump and uh, and Biden and one suspects others is really a reflection of the fact that the White House is rel- is a relatively unique space in the classified world. Uh, when I had to classified access, I could not take a document out of a secured facility, a skiff, unless it was triple bagged and locked in a briefcase. And I could only then open that in another uh, secured facility. Uh, but in reality, much of the White House is a secured facility. The president gets his classified briefings in the Oval Office, which is also a mixed use facility. Uh, he does other things in there too with other types of documents. So by its nature, there is a potential for, you know, mixing, if you will. And I think one of the things that we could maybe all agree on, dare I say bipartisanly at this point, is that it would be useful for the ODNI and DOJ and the White House to make some recommendations on revising classified handling provisions 
in the White House. Just saying. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. And I think this has been an ironic opportunity for the public to learn a bit more about the absurdities that are the rules around handling of classified information and how classified information is managed. Um, I do want to come back to something that Scott was talking about, which is the one of the interesting differences here being the length of time that the classified documents at issue have been out of government control. Because one thing that occurs to me is that in conjunction or in tandem with DOJ's investigation into Trump's documents that were uncovered at Mar-a-Lago, there was also an assessment ongoing, I believe, by ODNI to determine what, if any, risk or damage had occurred from the unsecured location of these documents. And as Scott mentioned, there is a much longer time period to consider But do we have reason to believe that part of the investigation that might happen going forward would involve not only an assessment of any potential criminal conduct that led to the existence of these documents um, outside of a secure facility, but also what, if any, risk or dangers came from that fact? Ben, I'll bring that one to you. There is almost always a damage assessment component of these investigations. And if only because as part of, uh, first of all, the government's principal equity here is actually not criminal prosecution. The government's principal equity is the control over its information and, you know, getting stuff back, making sure that stuff doesn't spill unnecessarily um, and the higher the classification uh, marking, the more the government is persnickety about, uh, and persnickety is the technical term for this, about accounting for everything. And so, yeah, there will be a kind of forensic effort to figure out how this situation developed. Yeah, and part of that will be, is there any evidence that any of the material actually fell into hands that it shouldn't have been in? Or is this a situation where the material sat in locked cabinets or in a box in the garage uh, for uh, six years and then has been returned to the National Archive? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, so 
We've talked about the sort of procedural point here of who is the right person and what is the right mechanism by which an investigation into this matter should happen. We've talked about the assessment that may occur relating to classified information and what harm may have happened as a result of this. Let's turn now to, based on what we know, which is, of course, with the caveat that this is an ongoing investigation and there is a lot we don't know. What are our thoughts thus far on the potential criminal culpability um, or the potential criminal case that the facts suggest thus far? Um, And how does that compare to the discussions we've been having around the situation with the documents that were discovered at Mar-a-Lago belonging to President Trump? Scott, I'll start with you on that one. So we have to first, I think, start out by acknowledging we don't have all the facts, uh, and that's part of the reason this investigation is taking place. That said, what we know so far is that it seems, at least according to the White House lawyers and officials who have been engaged on this on behalf of the Biden administration, they've asserted quite clearly that they believe this was just an inadvertent misplacement of classified documents that went unnoticed until now. They then, and this appears to be verifiably true, voluntarily brought them forward to the National Archives and and later the Justice Department as they've uncovered them. And they proactively appear to be searching out, identifying them and bringing them forward and handing them over. It doesn't appear to have been a Justice Department-driven search of the Biden residence or the Biden garage. In fact, that appears to have been kind of independently driven by folks around President Biden. I believe, in my mind, if it is inadvertent and if it is an accident and their full effort is being made to cooperate and proactively identify and rectify these mistakes, criminal exposure is likely to be extremely low. Most of the offenses, and in particular, the more serious offenses and the three offenses that we are associate with the Mar-a-Lago investigation that are listed on the Justice Department's search warrant, which are the main three ones that seem to be the focus of that investigation, at least at that stage, all involve willful efforts to conceal or obstruct or otherwise withhold documents knowingly that you're aware what they are and that you are deliberately not giving them back or deliberately holding them in the way that you're not supposed to be doing. And so if there's genuinely ignorance about what's happening here, then those offenses wouldn't seem to apply. Would there be grounds for potentially taking people's security clearances away for them having professional ramifications? Yes, absolutely. Um, including potentially for President Biden, although because he's president, that doesn't really matter that much, but for somebody in a situation, right? And other people who who knowingly or recklessly kind of stumbled across this. But most of the criminal offenses, and and Paul and Ben, please correct me on this, most of certainly the serious criminal offenses, I think just about all of them, there's a willful component to them. And so I, I don't think there is likely to be criminal elements coming out of this unless we really see willful conduct or at least, you know, severely negligent conduct. Paul, what's your assessment of the potential criminal case? I, I share Scott's view. I mean, let's start by remembering that the Department of Justice has a policy against prosecuting sitting presidents that was invoked for President Trump. And so President Biden himself is at no risk. The willfulness component that Scott identified uh, might apply in some conceivable hypothetical circumstances to some of Biden's staff. But on what we know now, it seems highly unlikely that it will. The cooperation uh, is clear evidence of lack of such intent. And so, you know, I think it's, it's on what we know now, it's reasonably confident to predict 
that the possibility of criminal indictments coming out of this are pretty slim. I think far and away the greatest impact of this is going to be on the Mar-a-Lago case. And uh, that's a political impact, not a legal impact. Yeah, I largely agree with that. I just want to add a few things to it. So number one, right now we have no evidence that Joe Biden mishandled classified information. We have evidence that somebody in in the Joe Biden orbit who handles his papers, which may or may not be Joe Biden, mishandled some classified information. And so if you were going to imagine criminal exposure by Joe Biden, the first thing you would have to imagine is that there were evidence that emerged that this resulted from his personal conduct rather than that somebody working for him. You'd have to be able to prove that. I actually am skeptical that that's even true. You know, when presidents move, former presidents or vice presidents move places, they don't hire a U-Haul and pack up their own documents. They have staff that manage those things. And so I think the likelihood that President Biden is personally responsible for the presence of X document, but not Y document in his Penn Biden office or in his garage actually doesn't strike me as very high. Um, But whether I'm right about that or wrong about that, that would be something you would actually have to prove. Uh, The second thing is that, as Scott and Paul both say, you would have to prove that it was done not carelessly, but willfully. And that is really inconsistent with the behavior of the individuals right now who are going to look for material in order that they might return it. So I I actually think the likelihood that this investigation is going to go anywhere, barring a kind of Benghazi-like discovery of a, you know, secret Biden server or some, you know, kind of out of left field fact that we have no uh, prior knowledge of is pretty minimal. I will also say that that contrasts pretty strikingly with the Trump Mar-a-Lago situation, where you kind of knew from the beginning that Trump was individually involved. And that was because the search warrant affidavit made clear that there was evidence of obstruction. It's because there was a lot of news reporting that the president view was that he could blanket declassify things by thinking about it and by moving it into the the residence. He tweeted about it. And there were all these news stories about how he told people, you know, this stuff is mine and that he was sort of personally hoarding stuff. And so I do think the differences are quite striking here. And the superficial similarities uh, are really, really only on the surface. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I do want to raise, though, given that the superficial similarities are quite striking and are quite obviously going to invite comparisons and, you know, from critics, accusations of hypocrisy of having treated with such seriousness the revelations out of Mar-a-Lago. 
Why is it that the Biden team, for example, did not undertake a proactive search of his vice presidential records around the time that the news broke of the Mar-a-Lago classified documents, which was in August. From from what I've read in the news, the instigating event for discovering the documents in November was the fact that Biden's team was moving materials out of the Penn-Biden Center to close that office when they discovered the documents. Um, and I think this speaks to Paul's point about the connection between these two and it not being such a legal question, but more a political question. Scott, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, sure. There, there is a lot of like hypotheticals one could say about well, why didn't we take the step earlier? But uh, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think the answer is a pretty straightforward one. It's that you have two different situations that seem different here. Two different White Houses. Two people who took a different approach. There's, I don't think we have any knowledge that Trump deliberately took classified documents out from the White House. But it certainly seems like he might have. We do have clear knowledge that once he, he became aware, he had them after the fact and refused to give them back. But that doesn't seem like the approach that Biden seemed to have taken. If if you didn't do this deliberately, if it really was an inadvertent error, you wouldn't have reason to go back and look at these documents. And the Biden vice presidential library of documents, I have no doubt, is gargantuan because you're talking about eight years in the White House of a vice president who was very actively involved in policy decisions. I'm sure there's tons of records you'd have to look through to actually verify all that. So I'm not sure it's just naturally something you would assume to do that every former president's vice president as of August 2022 is now going pouring over their old records to make sure there's no classified information tucked in there. Because of the reason Paul noted, the fact that White House is actually like not great about how to handle classified information, that might be totally warranted. And maybe now with a bit of a pattern established, you'd get there. But I'm not sure that that reflects any sort of negligence in my mind. I think the point that people will raise that is, at least on its face, seems most colorable here is why didn't wasn't this issue made where to the public in November? And of course, there's a timing issue there because it's proximate to the midterm elections and there might be political ramifications. And I'm sure people will point to that as a reason why Biden's people at least did not want to bring it forward and use that as a coloring and blaming the Justice Department or others as to why this didn't come, become public. But there again, I think we have to bear in mind that the investigation in the Mar-a-Lago documents was kept completely secret from the public for months and months and months through a variety of sensitive periods, not an active election, but plenty of other things happening. And that's more consistent with the Justice Department's usual approach to these things, that they keep it relatively quiet. Maybe a former president, Biden, you know, it's a fair point, maybe criticize him saying maybe he should have come out day one and acknowledge this as a potential mistake, inadvertent or not. But that's not what former President Trump did either. Uh, and I'm not sure that's the natural conclusion here for what initially seemed like it might be an isolated incident, really beyond certainly the president's knowledge or control. Long story short, I think a lot of these parallels kind of break down a little bit if you really critically think about them. Um, and unless we get more facts here, that really tie much more willfulness into this sort of conduct is really easily distinguished from the Mar-a-Lago scenario, where, again, we had a very deliberate effort to withhold these documents from the federal government after they were actively seeking them back. But you know, we'll have to wait to see if we actually get facts along those lines right now. We don't see anything that looks like that. Yeah. So I think this this poses an interesting question, which is, what is the degree to which all of this news and what will now be an ongoing special counsel investigation into Biden documents have an impact on the also ongoing Mar-a-Lago special counsel investigation. Ben, what are your thoughts? 
So I actually think the point is overstated by a lot of uh, political commentators who seem to assume that Merrick Garland is going to be making the ultimate decisions here, and specifically uh, seem to assume that he won't be able to bring the case against Trump because he's going to not bring a case against Biden. And I think this all misses something pretty fundamental, which is that he's appointed two separate special counsels to make these decisions. And while he formally has some uh, authority to overrule the special counsels in both cases, it's quite narrow. Uh, And so as a functional matter, he has delegated these prosecutorial decisions to two different people who are not responsible for following one another's investigations. And so I think the overwhelming likelihood here is that uh, Mr. Smith is going to look at the Mar-a-Lago case and be as horrified by it as the facts are turn out to be horrifying. And he's going to decide how those facts match up against Justice Department policy in bringing such a case. Mr. Herr is going to do the same thing in the Biden case, where the facts are likely to be dramatically less horrifying, and they're each going to come to a decision, probably without consulting each other, about what the cases that they're responsible for require. And Merrick Garland will, in fact, defer to both of their judgments because they're both career substantial, uh, well-reputed, uh, both career and political appointee prosecutors with a lot of experience who aren't going to make outrageous judgments on this. So I think the light, the overwhelming likelihood is that the impact on the Mar-a-Lago investigation will be very near zero, except in the sense that it will provide Fox News and Jim Jordan a recurring talking point. Paul, what do you think? Well, I I love to be in the position of saying that everything Ben just said is absolutely correct. And he, I think, gets to the wrong conclusion. A week ago, I would have bought Mar-a-Lago prosecution futures and, and banked them away. I think they're actually substantially diminished in value at this point. And the reason is not because that it has changed anything about the actual facts of the Mar-a-Lago case, but what it has changed and will make very much more difficult is the ability to win that case in front of a jury of 12 people. The Mar-a-Lago case, uh, it probably has to be prosecuted in Florida, which means that the jury veneer is going to be filled with people, many of whom come to the case with a pro-Trump bias in the first instance who could be persuaded, but uh, there's always the possibility that at least one guy tries to get on just to nullify. But let's leave that aside. But then there's going to be a battle over whether or not Trump's defense lawyers can do the Biden did it to defense. The judge will rule against that, but that will play out in a way that will ultimately impact the trial of the case, possibly uh, circle back to the jurors. It's Im- impossible to keep information like that from them. It is a horrible false equivalency. It should not be admitted because, as we've said already, Trump's willful obstruction is nothing like what seems to have happened, at least so far as we know, with Biden. But the reality is 
is that, you know, when he sits there at the end of the day and says, can we get 12 Florida jurors on the east coast of Florida in the southern district to vote guilty on this unanimously, the odds just went substantially down. And that's, you know, I mean, I don't like that answer at all. But if if Jack Smith is is asking the question, not about the interests of the federal government, but the first question, which is, do I believe I have evidence sufficient to prove a case in front of a jury that will be accepted by them? You know, we face the same question with respect to the Clintons in Arkansas. And the real answer was no. And I think that's the answer here, too. Okay, Scott, what about you? Are you buying futures and Mar-a-Lago indictments? You know, I will, as the characteristic third, split the difference between my wise predecessors. I think Paul's undoubtedly correct that this makes prosecution a dicier prospect because of political dynamics, because of the impact on the jury pool um, for a variety of reasons that could enter the formula. But I have to say, I think the evidence in the Mar-a-Lago case, it's extremely bad and is very close to a smoking gun. And it just may be strong enough that the Justice Department sees it as worth pursuing in spite of the slightly higher risk that it doesn't go their way. Okay. So to wrap us up, let's talk for a moment about the special counsel that the attorney general has selected for this matter, Robert Purr, um, who is also a career prosecutor, as you have noted. What can we expect from him? What do we know about him that will impact what we are likely to see in the coming weeks and months? Scott, go ahead. So all I would add, point to point here is he appears to be a very experienced attorney. He has really, in a lot of ways, strong Republican credentials, but it's worth noting he was the U.S. attorney during the Trump administration, but got the strong support from two Democratic senators in the state of Maryland in pursuing that role. He thanked them in his exit remarks. And during his time, the District of Maryland was very involved in a range of public corruption investigations. So he's got that kind of ideal resume that seems like you would want the sort of figure somebody with experience and who's got a lot of potential bipartisan and particularly conservative Republican credibility, which clearly seems a reason why he was chosen and vetted through this process. So I, I haven't seen any reason to be concerned about the choice of him, um, but I'd defer to Ben and Paul to see if they have any more insight into his past history and background. Paul, what do you think? What are you expecting to see? I mean, I think he's a good choice. As Scott outlined, he does have, I know him very, very slightly, and he has a good reputation as doing the job the right way, not politically. I think he's an advantageous choice in the sense that as a former Trump uh, U.S. attorney, if he in the end clears Biden, that won't satisfy the worst of Fox News and Jim Jordan and the MAGA heads, but it ought to satisfy any sensible Republican. I expect that we will see him move relatively quickly to resolve this case, uh, especially since it seems fairly well focused on, on uh, uh, three locations. If, it, if, the, if more come to light, then the, obviously the investigation will expand. And, and more importantly, because it sounds very much like uh, nobody will be asserting privileges and nobody will be trying to avoid you know, signing certifications and all of the tricks and and delays that have come out of the Trump administration's side of the Mar-a-Lago case. So, you know, I think there's a solid reason to think that this will be over before the end of this year or early in Q1, assuming, as the facts seem to indicate right now, that there is no real evidence of criminality. And Ben, what about you? What are you looking for? 
I agree with both Paul and Scott here. I think it's a good choice. I think there's basically two possibilities. One is that uh, her takes a look at this and says, there's no constellation of unknown facts that would justify bringing a case based on what we know. So we're going to take a quick look around and then kind of decide it on the basis of, of precedent. That is, there's no case remotely like this that has ever been prosecuted. We're not going to start here. Uh, the second is that there's some exacerbating circumstance, and the fact that Lausch did not do exactly that suggests that there may be some circumstance that makes it worse, uh, at least for somebody, if not for Joe Biden, in which case it could drag on for a while, both for investigative and potentially for, I suppose, prosecutorial reasons. I do think this poses very little risk for Joe Biden, but it is embarrassing and it does complicate the Mar-a-Lago story. And I think the instinct on the part of the attorney general to have a well-regarded, serious prosecutor who's also uh, a conservative and served in the Trump administration is a wise way to resolve it. Okay, we are going to leave it there. Ben Wittes, Scott Anderson, and Paul Rosenzweig, thank you for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.